Welcome once again to the Horror Island Horrorcast. I'm Dan Collicott, and I just wanted to do a quick intro to this podcast interview with horror writer and director Richard Roundtree, who was responsible for the awesome UK horror flick Dogged, and is now currently working on a Kickstarter campaign for his latest home invasion movie, Nefarious. I am talking to British horror director Rich Roundtree, and we are discussing his new movie, Nefarious. Uh, welcome, Rich. How's it going? Hello. Yeah, good. Thank you very much. Thank you for having me on. Awesome. Well, let's let's talk about uh, Nefarious, uh, a little bit about the plot, the background, and how you decided to follow on from Dogged with a film which I think is a, is a very different genre than the first. Yeah, absolutely. So, um, yeah, Dogged, uh, as you said, is a, a kind of a folk horror, so it's kind of a, a throwback to the 60s and 70s kind of um, rural horror with, uh, you know, focusing on the horror of the landscape and, and, and kind of um, communities with uh, skewed ideals and so on and so forth. And um, Nefarious, as you say, is very different in that it's a home invasion movie kind of predominantly set in one location. And um, this one, where, whereas the last one was kind of an allegory for... Um, uh, the, the the whole kind of Brexit uh, vote and everything that was going on at the time when we were writing it and shooting it. Um, this one's um, kind of, again, kind of uh, entrenched in, um, you know, social problems that we have in the UK. And this one kind of focuses on um, the, uh, the the kind of class divide and, and misdistribution of wealth uh, amongst the population and, and how that kind of creates resentment and, uh, you know, leads to horrors, uh, you know, of a diff- different kind. And with Nefarious, um, you know, a typical home invasion movie kind of centres around the the protagonist torturing the the actual owners or the the, the people within the home. Uh, usually, with very, you know, it's very bleak. There's not much motivation to that to that torture and to that kind of control of that situation. How how does Nefarious differ from that? So yeah, so our movie's a bit different in this. It's kind of told from the, the perspective of the people who are breaking into the house rather than the homeowners. Um, and there's, there's there's a good reason for that that will be uh, revealed all in good time. But um, we, uh, we we kind of make movies um, uh, as mounted films. You know, the sorts of movies that we would want to watch ourselves. And um, we're kind of you know we're quite tired of, of watching kind of formulaic kind of flasher movies and. And home invasion movies, so we've kind of flipped that on its head a little bit with this, and then um, so telling the story from uh, from the point of view of the people who are breaking in uh, kind of appealed to us because they uh, they do have a good reason for for breaking in, but it's not the kind of you know sort of torture porn uh, aspect of it that that is, is relatively popular uh, in in the indie horror scene. You know, we don't focus on that. We we really write our films. Um, based around the characters and, and what drives them. So, you know, they're, they're, they're very character-driven pieces rather than just being flat-out kind of horror movies that are just meant to make you feel squeamish for, for this sort of hour-and-a-half runtime. You know, they, they've kind of got a deeper meaning. So, for the for the characters in Nefarious, do we actually come round to their, 
to their viewpoint, their way of thinking, their motivations and, and flipping the script, we actually end up feeling sorry for them? Yeah, absolutely. So, um, uh, obviously, you know, we present them at, at first, you know, uh, as, um, you know, kind of, you know, not very nice people. Um, but um, we give them reasons uh, for not being very nice. You know, they, they, they come from uh, kind of a poverty-stricken uh, background and um, they see a way of, of getting out of that by uh, by breaking into this house and stealing something. And um, uh, when they get into the house, you know, the, 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 the people that live in the house actually want to, protect what they've got in there more than uh, the, the the people who are breaking in kind of ever realised and, and they end up being much more of a threat to, to our protagonists than, uh, than uh, the protagonists are to them. So how does um, making a film that's obviously predominantly shot in one location uh, differ from something like Dogged where obviously it was set on an island I imagine you had um, a number of different filming locations we sat down the four of us as producers um uh, kind of when we you know been through the, the crest of the dogged wave as it were and then we kind of had a bit of a debrief and, and talked about things that we would do differently in the next project and how we could make things more efficient and and um you know look better than uh, they were before and um as you say with dogged you know we were kind of we had 22 principal cast and and we were at locations you know we were in oxford we were in essex we were in slough we were in worthing uh we were kind of all over the southeast of england and uh it, it you know when you're working with such minuscule budgets it's, it's really difficult um to, to kind of make the money stretch far enough to, to be able to make that possibility so we came up with the idea of kind of as you say sort of condensing everything into uh uh a more controllable shoot as much as anything else. So what we wanted to do was restrict the number of cast members uh, and restrict the number of locations. And, and kind of that obviously leans itself very nicely towards the home invasion uh, subgenre, which is one that, you know, we all enjoyed for different reasons. Um, uh, so once we kind of had that idea, we sat down and, and between the four of us, we kind of trashed out the, the, the kind of basic story. And then Matt Davies, uh, who, who co-writes with me, um, we sat down and, and you know we, we worked out the finer details of it and then the way we write is so I'll do a draft and then uh, we get together and, and have a chat about it and then he does the draft and we get backwards and forwards. Uh, then we send it off to a script editor uh, that we work with and uh, she actually comes back with lots of suggestions and, and, and uh, comments about what we've written and then we go back and rewrite it all again. So I mean, it's a long process. We, we end up normally doing uh, about 20 drafts uh, of the script until we're happy with it because obviously we have to write to, to our budget to our available locations and, and, and to the actors that we want to, to fill the roles and I understand um, from the way you, you, you've planned on, on filming Nefarious that you're, you're actually building a set to, to a company or, or to, to, to be part of the, the house location that you're, you're actually right. filming in yeah, about, so about 70% of the film is actually set within two rooms uh, of a house. And um, obviously we're, we're relying on the goodwill of, uh, of kind of homeowners and location owners uh, when we do these things because of the scale of our budget. And um, so we, we figured out that, you know, because kind of almost half of our shoot was going to be in these two rooms, it was going to actually be easier, more effective um, uh, and, 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 you know, give us free reign to kind of do what we wanted in the location by, by making a set. Um, you know, we can't go around smashing up walls and leaving bloodstains on, uh, on people's <laughs> kitchens and things. So it, it worked out a lot better. 
what we can shoot. So we decided to go down that route. We've built sets before for our short films, and um, they've been very impressive. Our production designer, Mel, is, uh, is amazing, and, and that's actually what she specialised in uh, when she was at college. Uh, so, um, yeah, I'm, I'm confident that they're going to look great. But it, 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 it gives us the opportunity to you know completely control the lighting and, and not have to worry too much about damaging things uh, when, we're, when we're making it. So I think it's worth pointing out uh, to the listeners that even though you know you, you created uh, you know an incredibly um, you know well respected, well reviewed film in Dogged, that the way you set about um, crowdfunding that and bringing the talent together is is a model where you have actors doing you know doing their parts getting involved sheerly you know sheer for the love of it which in its in its purest form how how do you manage to get such you know accumulate such such you know exceptional talent for 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 your horror films yeah i mean it's it's casting crew you know as you say nobody gets paid a penny on them um we, we kind of all purely do it for the love of making it we you know we're all people who um or on the whole, with people who work in the industry or who have aspirations to work in the industry. And so um, it, it's a chance for us to get together and, and kind of for, for a lot of the people to act as heads of department when they wouldn't ordinarily get the chance to do that. So it gives them a chance to showcase their talents as much as anything else within the crew. Um, the cast we're very lucky with as well. I mean, they um, the, 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 the way that we, we kind of work these things is, you know, we, we obviously... You know, I think with all writers, you write with an actor in mind and, and when you give them the script, you just hope that they like it. And um, obviously when you're, when you're not able to pay anything, they have to really love it to, to want to get involved and, and be, you know, have nice leading roles and good lines and something that's going to be good for their showreel. And thankfully, all of the cast and crew trust us to, to produce something, uh, you know, of a standard that they're all going to be proud of and they're going to all be able to use as a calling card, whether it's, you know, sound people, hair and makeup people, uh, you know, set builders, any, anything, you know, people always want uh, the opportunity to, to express themselves um, uh, artistically and, and hopefully by working on a, a, a film this kind of scale outside of the, not Hollywood machine, but even, you know, just the, the, the professional filmmaking machine, as it were, they get that chance to step up and lead their departments and, and they're all very, very capable of doing it, but Obviously, you know, there's an old guard within the, the film industry and it's very difficult to penetrate that. So um, this gives them the opportunity to, 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 you know, take on those roles before they would naturally get there uh, in their careers. So I guess from that point of view, you don't have that burden of interference that a, a lot of films have and you can genuinely, you know, bring to life your vision and have that, that kind of, that, that ownership without having to, to water it down. Um, Completely, yeah, and, and that's one of the reasons why we why we go down the crowdfunding route as well, because, we, you know, like you said, we don't have anybody breathing down our necks. We don't, you know, if we make a film that's an hour and 45 minutes, we don't have someone saying, you need to cut 15 minutes out of this, to, you know, for our DVD release. And, and <clears throat> you know, while you still get, you know, distributors and festivals asking for those kinds of things, the, the onus uh, isn't on you, uh, kind of professionally to, to, to do that, to satisfy that need. You know, all of the people who invest in, in, in the Kickstarter campaign get to see at the end of it something that is the vision of not just me, but, you know, all of the cast and crew, you know. We, we listen to 
everybody. We're very collaborative, and um, I, 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 hopefully that comes across on on the films. Um, you know, we we don't run. You know, it's very much a democracy, um, uh, and and if somebody's got a good idea, we'll always listen to it on set. I have to address um, one rumor I heard uh, that when you were making uh, Dogged for a particularly interesting an external scene that um, you required uh, well you got by with a little help from your friends could you tell us about that yeah absolutely so when we were filming the um, the kind of showdown as it were it's not it's not the, the, the very end but the kind of climax of dogged we um, we needed a large number of, um, uh, of men who were prepared to go topless and wear animal masks uh, and stand around this uh, kind of neolithic stone circle and then um, I was kind of wondering, you know, where on earth I was going to find uh, uh, that, that sheer volume of men who were prepared to stand outside all day on a Saturday and, uh, you know, just kind of do that for, for, for little or no reward. And um, I, uh, I, I'd been invited on a stag do uh, the same day and I'd, I'd emailed the, the, um, the best man back uh, a couple of months beforehand and said, you know, that I'm not going to be able to make it because I'm shooting, but, you know, I hope you all have a great time. And, he came back to me and he said, well, look, he said, I'm actually looking for something really fun and unusual to do with the guys um, that they won't have ever done before, you know, something other than, you know, laser quest or archery for a day or something like that. So uh, I can see an opportunity here. Why don't we come down and, uh, and and we'll be in your film and then we'll go off afterwards and party. And, uh, and so it worked out brilliantly. We ended up with like 20 or 25 guys down there. And uh, I think it cost us like two crates of beer. Um, uh, and, and they were stood there very happily. Uh, until about five o'clock in the afternoon, uh, when they were kind of expecting to get to the pub, and it was good because we'd already wrapped up by then. So, yeah, it worked out really nicely <laughs> and unusual. <laughs> and were they cold if they had to be standing around topless all day? Yeah, I mean, I, I think certainly a few of them got kind of midge bites and things that they weren't expecting, <laughs> and they all ended up with these um, uh, crazy Celtic symbols painted on their their torsos. Uh, so I'm not sure how that went down in the nightclubs in. Uh, Reading or Oxford or wherever they went out, but um, it, we were lucky. It was, it was, I think, it was the first or second weekend in September, and uh, it was quite warm that day. It did, it did rain a couple of times, but um, they, uh, I, I think, they had beer jackets on. The beer kept them warm and, and, and happy, and we provided them with plenty of snacks, so <laughs> they, they were happy and they, they were very good world about it. Bless them. <laughs> that sounds incredible. <laughs> <laughs> it was fun. From a point of view of in, in dogged the, the animal masks, is there a temptation to because home invasion movies are all about masks? Is there going to be a, a subtle nod to dogged uh, in nefarious through the form of mask? Um, well, we we kind of toyed with the idea, but um, uh, I think because of the way that we're telling the story and because it's such a flip on its head. Um, there is a mask involved, which is which is kind of quite key to uh, the reveal um, towards the end of the film. But it's uh, it's a slightly different one. So it's actually it's not our protagonists um, who are doing the breaking into the house that are wearing it. It's, um, there's a little bit of play towards the end because they're breaking into a family's house, and one of this member of this family is a, is a real kind of monstrous predator. And, and um, uh, we 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 kind of toy with the audience a little bit about you know which which member of the family it is and so there is a bit of mask wearing going on there but uh, it's, uh, it's 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 along a little bit more traditional lines of uh, not not quite so horrific but more of a, a kind of um, a domestic kind of mask yeah, intriguing very
Very intriguing. <laughs> so I guess as a filmmaker, as a horror filmmaker, this is and this is going to sound a really ridiculous question, but is there anything you look for more in a horror film uh, from the point of view? Do you go for gore, gore and blood, and the actual execution of the kills? Do you like thriller and suspense aspect of it, or do you go for kind of jump and visual, you know, fast film cut scares? Yeah, I. Not, yeah, I'm kind of I'm much more down the, the kind of psychological horror route. I mean, I, as I said, we kind of we make films that we would want to watch ourselves, and, and we're kind of uh, you know the four producers, the kind of producers in our late thirties, and, and I think we've been through you know seeing all of the the kind of different subgenres that have been around in the last twenty or twenty five years, and, and for me, the, the although. Uh, you can enjoy the kind of visceral thrill of a, 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 a movie, um, uh, you know, for, for the hour and a half wrong time. I, I always feel a little bit empty at the end of it. Um, and and uh, the, 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 the films that I'm still thinking about two or three days later in terms of the, the plot and the characters are the ones that stick with me. So with all of our films, that's kind of the, you know, the route that we want to go down. That's not to say that there isn't a little bit of splatter in there and, and um, uh, you know, one or two original, hopefully very original deaths. Um, but uh, the, yeah, the, the the ones that leave you thinking afterwards or leave you with chills. You know, when you're getting in the car at the cinema, uh, when you when you've left the movie, are the ones that kind of uh, really stick with me, and they're the, they're the kind of films that I want to make. I guess on that front, a home invasion movie is kind of perfect for that because. Whereas a lot of um, slasher films and supernatural horrors, even though, you know, of course we love them, they do kind of push the boundaries of realism, reality. They take us out of ourselves. So a lot of the time, you know, and if even if there is a psychological aspect to it, it's hard to really um, invest in that when you know it's kind of, it's unlikely, it's not real, it's too far-fetched. Whereas a home invasion film, uh, you know, the the perfect element to that setup is that it could happen to any of us. Well, exactly. I mean, I, you know, particularly like our, our setting and you know, kind of you know, the area that I've grown up is you know, it's, it's semi-rural, and so you know, you, you you have these kind of vast voids of of light where anything could be going on, um, uh, and. Um, you know, we we had a burglar alarm installed in our house, you know, a few years ago, and, and we shut it at night, and and you know, once or twice it's gone off in the middle of the night, and and it's just from the cat, you know, kind of running from one room to another <laughs> or something. But uh, when that alarm goes off, you know, the the intrinsic panic that you have in you, you know, you you're looking around your bedroom, you know, what can I take downstairs to try and you know, kind of fight against whoever it is that's broken into my house, and it's. You know, I think particularly, you know, in, in Britain, you know, obviously there's the old saying, you know, kind of like an Englishman's home is his castle. And, and it's very much a case of that. I think, you know, property is so expensive in the UK and, and people have to work so hard to to, uh, to, to get their foot on their, their, their housing ladder. And, and, and so once, once you've got your home, it's kind of, it's almost another member of your family. Um, so to have that invaded, um, particularly when you're at home, feels like to me you know one of the ultimate kind of invasions of, of your life um you know rather than just kind of running around the woods being chased by someone you know in a michael myers mask or freddie krueger 
have it. It's, like you say, you can kind of put that to the back of your mind afterwards because you know that it's not real. But we all know, you know, that when we're upstairs in, in bed at night, that someone could break into your house and you could be put into this situation. And, and the, the the kind of idea of that is something that fascinates me because it, it's something that you, it's a fear that we you just can't get rid of. You can't shake that thought. There's always the possibility that could happen. And if it does, you, you know, you just feel so violated. Yeah. No, totally. Because at the end of the day, um, any lock on any house, let's face it, is easy to penetrate. If someone wants to break in, um, it's only a case of them having the willpower and the tools to do it, which are usually easy, easily obtained. Exactly. Anyone can break a window, you know, get into your house. It's, that's the, that's the, the kind of terrifying thing. You just, you, you, you know, you, you rely on the, the kind of mass sanity of, of, of the population that most people don't go out and do it. But, you know, you, you could end up in this situation where, you know, there's a spate of it in a certain area. You read reports of this and, and you know, sometimes it's the same people, the same perpetrators doing it over and over again until they get caught in the same area. And, and when you're kind of caught in that, uh, cycle, I think, in, you know, as a town or as a village, you know, it's, it's, it's really frightening. No, definitely. I don't know if you've ever heard, but um, there are certain markings that uh, I guess wannabe kind of organised burglars slash criminals leave on walls and pavements around certain neighbourhoods. Yeah, yeah, I've heard those. I'm not sure if they're urban myths or not, but you know, you know, I've seen things about you know leaving a note in the milk bottle out the front and, and yeah, things like that, and leaving the lid open on the wheelie bin out the front. I'm sure they're all things that are just done, you know, as urban legends to, to kind of scare the, the majority of the population. But I'm sure that, you know somewhere along the line there's urban truth as well. Yeah. Well, it, I don't know how much. I mean, a friend of mine actually showed me markings and claimed that the markings meant that uh i can't remember what it was it was something along the lines of they've they've canvassed a house and and decide and, and left a kind of rating of how easy or viable or worthwhile it is to rob in fact okay. I, I had a very 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 weird incident so i had a flat um that I actually had to rent out, um, which is really strange in itself. And uh, I had some friends renting it from me. Some people broke in. They broke in through the back door. They had been canvassing the place, as in literally a, a car kept turning up and parking outside with people in it. And it was duly noticed by a lot of people in the road. And then yep. they came in. And I think the sk the scariest part of the story was not that they they went in through the back door and took you know I think they took a few laptops and a few things but the fact is that they came in armed and how we knew they were armed is they left something like three very big knives and they just literally just dropped them where they stood um, picked up the stuff and then left them so yeah my friends and obviously tenants at the time came in to find a load of stuff missing the you know they the back door open and these enormous knives you know i mean kitchen it's, knives it's horrifying isn't it yeah. but what i mean the psychology of that it's like so they were prepared 
to 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 attack someone if they got caught but at some point they realized well we can't you know we can't um we can't carry all this stuff that we want to steal and the knives so we're just going to leave them behind i don't know incredible <laughs> really incredible well, and this is the thing. I mean, it's the, it's the desperation of the people that are committing these crimes, and, and that's kind of one of the things that we focus on in the various. You know, the, the the protagonists are in a situation where it's kind of they feel like they have to do this because you know they're they're indebted to to uh, somebody, and it's the only way that they can see out of it. You know, they you know they, they can't get involved in a a kind of a, a traditional kind of get rich quick scheme or. Uh, you know, go out and work for more money. You know, they, what they need to do is they need, you know, instant uh, funds, you know, so that they can pay off this threat to their life. So, yeah, our, 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 our protagonists take weapons in as well. They're they're a bit more kind of blunt force kind of in, instruments, but um, they, they they go prepared. So, from what you're saying, they're not quite your typical career criminals. No, absolutely not. I mean, they. Although they, they, they're the kind of people who kind of dabble in crime, this is uh, the, 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 the break-in is the first time that they've ever attempted something on that scale. And whilst they, they kind of indulge in, in petty crimes, as it were, um, uh, they, they've, they're forced into to stepping that upper level and, and they break into the house because they think it's an easy target. Awesome. So just coming back to the the crowdfunding aspect of nefarious so i believe we have something within the region of is it, is it around 10 days left no it's only um uh three days now three and a half days left oh god right so, okay yeah so it finishes on friday and um we uh we, we've had a big boost over the last sort of eight or nine days so we're we're very close now we're about 97 percent funded wow um, so we're looking for Oh, well, that's excellent news. Do you want to give us a quick pitch for anyone who's listening who, um, obviously, they've got to get in quick, but what they could, um, you know, what the, what incentives they could get from uh, contributing to the Nefarious Crowdfunder? Yeah, sure. So, I mean, there's, there's, I think there's 32 different rewards. I think three of them now are sold out. But, um, uh, you know, they kind of start at, um, for £10, you can get a special thanks credit in the film. Um, for £15, you can get an early bird digital download of the film before it's generally released, um, which is a, a, a kind of a very popular reward. You know, obviously, it doesn't cost a great deal of money. Get the movie in your home uh, and, and watch it with a few friends, and it's a lot cheaper than going to the cinema. Um, uh, then uh, there's kind of lots of merchandise. Uh, there's um, mugs and T-shirts, uh, copies of our last film, Dogged on DVD. Um uh, posters of the film, uh, handwritten personalised thank you cards, copies of the script, um, and then you know at the other end of the scale, there's kind of um, you can get your company logo in the end roller of the film and the website address, um, which obviously if the film takes off, you know could be really valuable and really cheap marketing for somebody who's got a small business. Um, there's producer credits in there as well. Uh, there's a chance to come down and visit the set. There's tickets for the cast and crew screening. There's all manner of things on there. Wow, that sounds awesome. <laughs> uh, brilliant. And do you know when you're likely to start filming? Yep. So uh, we're basically, if 
because we all have paying jobs and, and we all do it for free, we, we shoot on weekends and we're due at the moment to shoot on weekends all the way through September and October. Um, I think it's something like nine or ten consecutive weekends in there. Um, and that's obviously based around kind of availability of locations and actors and, and uh, crew members. So, we, we, you know, there's, there's a lot of pre-production um, on that side of things that, that, you know, a lot of thought that has to go into it when everybody's working for free because we have to, you know, keep everybody happy uh, as much as possible. So, uh, yeah, there's, um, there's, there's, we've still got a bit to do, but we're, we're a lot further along uh, with the, the, the planning in general this time, you know, with our experience from Target than we were last time. Fantastic. And do you have any plans for the for the, the score and the soundtrack? Yeah, so um, uh, our amazing composer, James Griffiths, who did Dogged for us, uh, has, uh, has very kindly agreed to, to do the score again. So um, he's, uh, he's an amazing composer, actually. He works with a, a group of amazing musicians who work on Dogged for us. And um, the score for Dogged is actually being released around the same time as the DVD. And it's, it's, it's just a wonderful kind of, you know, classical album as much as anything else. You know, even if you you're not into the movie, you know, if you like classical music, it's worth picking up for sure. So, um, yeah, James is coming back to that, and, and we're delighted because he, he he really works on the same level as us. He um um he, he just kind of gets it. You know, he, he was sending us cues and that he was doing as we were doing the edit, and then um, he was saying, you know, a lot of the times, you know, he had to wait a month or two months to hear back from the directors and the producers about whether they liked the particular cue, but everything he sent us, I think there was one change we, we asked him to make for one cue, and, and the rest of it all just flowed perfectly, so, all, you know, everything we do is, is this kind of team ethos, and, and finding people that fit into that, you know, like a jigsaw, and, and he... he He's wonderful at what he does, and, and, and he fits in with us really well. So, yeah, we're, we're very glad to have him back on board. That's another one of the rewards. If you want an early bird digital download of the uh, soundtrack, you can get that for, I think, £25. Brilliant. And in terms of, especially independent horror movies, there's a very kind of um, dedicated and loyal kind of festival scene for horror in the UK, well, in fact, in the world, is there any plans? I mean, obviously, getting quite ahead of ahead of, um, uh, ahead of ourselves, but is there any plan to take uh, Nefarious um, on the festival circuit? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's 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 our primary audience, really. As you say, you know, the, the people who go to these uh, uh, festivals and and the people who run them largely are. are you know, really dedicated indie horror fans. You know, they're not the sort of people who are just looking for, you know, big budget movies and, and they want to see something that's a bit more interesting. And, and uh, funnily enough, you know, we, we, we did a big tour. It's been going on for about a year with Dogged um, and we've kind of been all over the world. And, and a lot of the people who've backed us on Kickstarter are people who've seen that film at different festivals around the world. So it's, 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 it's a great opportunity for us to engage directly with the audience we you know we always have a representative wherever we can go along to the festivals to meet people and chat about it because i think people the the, the people who go to those festivals are as interested in how they're made as they are the actual film themselves and then um, it's you know it's like anything i'd hate to uh, you know i'll probably brew this maybe well i don't know about probably i might read this in 20 years time but I think, you know, when you go to Comic-Con or whatever and, and you've got these kind of icons there and they're, they're charging 50 or £100, pounds, you know, for an autograph to, to meet someone for, for two minutes, you know. It's, 
I feel like, you know, that's, obviously that you've got to pay for their time, but I think, you know, a lot of them take advantage of it. And, and I just love meeting people and chatting about the movies, you know, as you can probably tell from the way I ramble on your podcast. But, I, you know, I, it's, it's just a, a really fun thing to do, just to chat to people about uh, movies. And, and if they're interested in our movies, I'll happily talk about them all day. <laughs> You see, I I never understand that. Like like some um, some comic cons, you, you can kind of get that a lot a lot of the actors aren't necessarily always in in kind of you know prime time work. So you know their 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 roles on some of these shows are quite far behind them. They're maybe not getting a lot of money from the industry anymore. So. So going going to these kind of you know fan conventions gets them a little bit of money, and I understand why they might want to want to charge a little bit. What I don't I find unforgivable is when a quite big actor who is genuinely still active and getting roles still in in TV and movies, and they demand it. it it's it's really weird. They don't need the money yet. They, you know, I, I, there was there was a story once uh, of Kevin Smith, who I am a big fan of, still a big fan of. I'm not I'm not kind of uh, kind judgment on that one, but yeah, there there was a story of him charging. I remember like fifty dollars for an autograph, and uh, and people were really kind of outraged because it's like, well, you know, you're. Your celebrity is sustainable. You don't need that money. Why? Why would you do that? But in some yeah. cases, they think, "Well, I'm I'm giving up my time. My time is worth huge amounts of money." And they 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 don't do it just to sort of, as as I'm sure you would. And obviously, I, I will in in about you know two two to five years time, I'll quote you on this when you're when you <laughs> when you make it big in Hollywood. But yeah, most people do do enjoy to sort you know you. You want that that fan adoration. You you want that um, what's the word? You want that feedback. You want you know it's the fans that that tell you that you've done a good job and you've made something. Exactly, and I mean that's what makes you what you are as well. You know, obviously, but I mean, I think obviously there's, there's largely um, you know management companies and agents and things like that that I'm sure are you know getting involved and putting pressure on these guys. But I think. I think it's about the attitude of them. I mean, you know, you go along to some of them, and you know, from what I've heard, because it's not, you know, I, I go to comic cons for fun, but I don't queue up and, and get autographs and things because it's it's not my bag. But some of the stories you hear about, you know, people, you know, being really off with with the people, you know, that are, that are queuing up there to get their autographs, it just, you know, it's outrageous. And then, you know, on the other end of the scale, you know, you see people like Kane Hodder, you know, who all happily pose with with uh, you know, people for photographs and, you know, wring their necks for a photograph and whatever else. And <laughs> yeah. I'm sure they do it as well, but, you know, it's, it's, about, it's about how you go about it. And, and you know, if, if you're engaging with people and, and, and being friendly, that's one thing. But I think, you know, if, if you're, you're kind of treating them, you know, belittling them a little bit at the same time, I think there's something wrong with it. No, I definitely agree. And I think one last question before I, I let you go. The the entire kind of movie uh, and TV industry seems to be changing uh, because of uh, you know streaming sites like uh, Netflix, Hulu, Amazon, and I think the 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 format of 
movies that are commissioned that often have short runs in the cinema um, but and then end up straight on Netflix. Do you think this is a good thing for the industry? Because the, the reason I ask that is, is one of my biggest issues as a horror fan is sometimes the availability of the film uh, that I really want to see, especially foreign movies, especially you know the more the the more interesting independent movies that 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 get get made. F- trying to find those movies and you know and experience those movies is is difficult. So do you think that, that you know the current influx of um, you know films that are going straight to Netflix and obviously Amazon and other platforms is a good thing? I I think it's great, you know, it's good as pros and it's cons. I mean, for me, I think having having films out on physical media and um, you know, you know, things like Blockbuster Video or um, uh, something that I particularly love was Love Film, where they send them in the post, which is now closed down as well. I think it gives you a much greater opportunity to see a, a vast range of of movies. I think the trouble with things like Netflix is that. Um, there are independent movies on there for sure, that, and there's some very low-budget independent movies on there, but they're things that you really have to search for. So when I was growing up, you know, I would go to the, 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 the video store uh, every weekend, and, and I, I would pick up you know co- VHS copies of films that I'd never heard of based on you know kind of cover art or provocative titles and things like that. And they're movies which nowadays... Um, I think I think younger people uh, don't get the opportunity to, to have the choice of whether or not they want to see them because they're simply not available anywhere. And I think that's that's quite a, a damaging thing. And, and um, on the other hand, you know, there are, as I say, there's lots of you know kind of very low budget movies on things like Netflix, and it's fantastic exposure for those filmmakers. But it's not giving. Uh, the audiences uh, 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 kind of a generalised enough view of, of what's going on in the in the filmmaking world, and, and you know, it, it, in order to to have interesting filmmakers, you know, proceed with a, a career that that might end up flourishing, you know, they, they make those kind of more edgy experimental movies earlier in their careers, and if they're not getting out there, then these people aren't making a name for themselves, and so I think it will have a knock on effect in five, ten, fifteen, twenty years time. Um, in that, that, you know, it's just a very homogenised process of, of, of watching films, I think. It's, um, uh, you know, so we, we're really lucky with Dogged, you know, got picked up for distribution. They're making uh, physical copies, you know, they're, they're, they're putting out on video on demand as well. So people have got that option and, and they'll be able to go into a store and buy the DVD because it's there physically in front of them. But a lot of people who are working at the budget level that we're working at, don't have that luxury, you know, their, their movies don't get picked up for whatever reason, and so it's kind of quite crushing, I guess, for them, you know, if, if you've got to put a movie out and, and on, you know, for example, iTunes, and you don't have a name for yourself, you're, you're solely relying on somebody actually searching for your movie to find it most of the time, it's not just going to flash up in front of them, and they're going to think, oh, you know, this is a great idea, I'll buy this. For ninety nine p or whatever, it's it it, it 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 narrows the horizons. Unfortunately, I think for for both audiences and filmmakers, um, which which I think yeah is is a dangerous thing going forward. No, that makes a lot of sense. It, it's very similar to the music industry, in that 
before I don't know I don't know when the the kind of music industry died, but but kind of um, the early kind of noughties, uh before that time. If if you if you're a band that was established, you can carry on making music because people know who you are. Um, they they know your music, your reputation. But it feels like now there's such a narrow band of music that gets out there that people know about, that people experience. Because as you said, the the whole you know the whole thing, like going to a video shop uh, and looking at the the covers, the artwork, um, the the pictures on the back of a film, just like a CD. You can't go into uh, there's no there's no CD store. There's there aren't many. Let's face it, where you can go yeah. in and just you know, ask to listen to a track or just, you know, look at something that's in a certain genre area or being promoted by the, the manager who likes it. it. It is very difficult to sort of see through the fog of promoted films and music and all kinds of content and information out there in order to, to sort of pick out the stuff that, doesn't have that advantage uh, because the the playing field just isn't level anymore. Exactly, and I mean it's not just it's not just the kind of home entertainment either. You know, it, it's similar releases as well. You know, you, you can go into a, a multiplex and and you know if they've got ten screens at the moment, you know maybe they're showing Avengers: Infinity War on six of those screens, and, oh. and you know maybe Black Panther on two of them still, and then you've got two other screens where they're showing something different, but. They're all kind of, you know, movies with people with names and, and you know, ones where you've probably seen the trailer, you know, on online or promoted on Facebook or something like that. It, um, you don't have that option, really, with the majority of cinemas, even the ones that are kind of relatively artsy cinemas, to, to go out there and, and kind of discover these things for yourselves. You know, if you think back to, um, you know, the, the, the kind of days of Roger Corman and people were just... You know, they were desperate for, for content as much as anything else. So they would have these double bills on of movies that, you know, all right, it might be a Roger Corman movie and people knew that, but they didn't necessarily know what the movie was about or anything else. But they were going out because it was a cheap form of entertainment and they didn't really care what they saw. And it gave people the opportunity to, to put more edgy stuff out there. Um, uh, and, and, and the same with the VHS kind of uh, payday of the 80s, you know, I think... Um, Troma and Lloyd Kaufman, you know, were kind of, they were scrabbling for content because people were just lapping up. People wanted to watch all this new stuff all the time. And, and now it's it's a very, very narrow view of, you know, everybody wants to go and watch. And don't get me wrong, I love, you know, the, the Marvel movies, but everybody wants to go and watch Avengers Infinity War. And if, if I go along with my wife and take my two kids, that's like a 55 pounds, you know, two hour entertainment session. Yeah. And, and, and you know, I would much rather that was £20 and then I would go to the cinema two, three times a week and, and watch different movies. But but audiences don't have that opportunity and, and that comes back to how important the film festivals are because they are giving you the chance as a filmmaker to have your film seen on a big screen in the kind of environment where you've made it for. You know, you, any filmmaker is always going to make their film to be seen on a big screen and to be heard on the, the, the kind of Dolby 5.1 or 7.1 surround system in there, regardless of budget, you know, that's what you want as a filmmaker. And so by going along to the, the, the festivals and, and 
watching it in there with an audience, you get to see how an audience reacts. You know, if you're watching a movie at home for the first time and, you know, you think, oh, I need some more peanuts or popcorn. And so you pause it and you get up and go and get some. And then 10 minutes later, you think, oh, I need a drink. And then you go out and get a drink. And you're always pausing this movie. You're not kind of immersed in it in the same way as you are in the cinema. And I think that's, that's damaging as well, particularly for horror movies where, you, you know, you're trying to build up tension over a period of 90 minutes or 120 minutes or whatever. And, you know, to have that constantly broken by being at home doesn't do the film any favours in the eyes of the audience, but the audience don't see it like that. You know, they'll break the movie up because they, because they're at home and they can do those things. Uh, whereas in the cinema, they're kind of sat in their seat. You know, they're almost locked into it. I find it pretty upsetting as well that a lot of the cinemas in London, for example, in central London, that were once independent cinemas are now owned by the big chains. Yeah. And and as you say, you know, if you get a big, a big screen cinema or sorry, a multiplex, you end up with uh, the same film showing on, you know, four, five, six different screens. And rather than just, it's, you know, rather than just sort of being a little bit more flexible and dynamic, when they have an action film that, that they've obviously committed to showing and it, it bombs because it's, it's absolute twaddle. Um, rather than just saying having a backup plan and saying, well, rather than than you know, I don't know, uh, a month of empty screens, they they might, I mean, they may shorten the run, but they can't just say, well, okay, what other what other films can we put on? What other things can we, you know, prom- promote to get uh, bums on seats to get people through the yeah. door? Because they they don't think like that. The commitment. You know they're all owned by the big uh, film distributors and film ma- um, film studios. So therefore, it's the film. You know, it's two or three films that they they have some kind of stake in or you know ownership of or nothing. And that's what really saddens me because other than going to you know the, the, you know going on the festival scene or going to places like uh, BFI. Or Prince Charles Cinema, or some of the, you know, maybe the Everyman Cinemas, you know, you're not going to experience some of these absolute, you know, incredible gems. You know, you're not going to be able yeah. to see something like Dogged because there's so much um, noise generated by, you know, the the three big studios, which is going to become two big studios, and and soon the monopoly is complete. And as and as much as you know, you know, you and I love a bit of Avengers Assemble, you know, a bit of uh, mindless big screen fun because there's a lot of money spent on it and it's well done, but ultimately you kind of want a bit more than that. Uh, you can't get by on a diet of Marvel films alone. Well, you shouldn't anyway. No, for sure. Well, and, and this is the problem I think young people are, are kind of, you know, just kind of focused on that and, and, and you know, it's something I try really hard with with my kids, you know, they're only kind of eight and almost six, but I, you know, I try and get them to watch a range of stuff rather than, than just, you know, your Beverly Hills Chihuahua or, you know, <laughs> things like, and, and I have to say, I'm not dissing Beverly Hills Chihuahua because I thought it was hilarious, but, you know, it's, um, uh, if they're just watching, you know, the kind of, the, 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 the mass Disney produced stuff or, or, um, you know, the Fox stuff all the time. It's, it's it, you know, there, there's just no range to it. And, and I'm actually really looking forward to, to when they're a bit older and I can 
showing them, you know, the kind of stuff that I like watching. But it'll be a while yet. <laughs> <laughs> I think I think idea for your third film should be a some form of talking dog, cat, or animal that that <laughs> appears to be. You know, incredible, incredibly lovable, misunderstood, you know, o- overly zealous and energetic, but then slowly goes a bit wrong and savagely murders all the, the you know, all the families, the nuclear, what's it, the... <laughs> it's like Cujo with Disney. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. Starts murdering all the families in, in the uh, in the suburban neighbourhoods. Uh, Maybe ganging up with other talking, you know, other demonic talking dogs and cats. Because let's face it, I mean, dogs and cats shouldn't talk in the first place. So there's got to be something weird and demonic about it in the first place. It sounds like I might need a bigger budget for that one. <laughs> <laughs> well, you can internalise it. Do it. Do it like the uh, the the very kind of early films. Uh, the early kind of uh, Disney kids films, where you know, I think I think they just they said what the animal was thinking. Yeah, so, just the voiceover on top. Yeah, yeah, exactly, and then keep it keep it old school, and just have a dog, you know, sat there. It's being stroked by its owner. It's like and and the child, and they're going, oh, old uh, old Biggus here. He's uh, he's a lovely dog. He looks after us. He looks after. My son Jeddy, and and the dog's just thinking, yeah, I'm gonna tear his throat out at the first opportunity <laughs> I get. I'm just gonna rip him apart. Ah, oh, Jeddy. Is, that is what that is what dogs are thinking, actually. And cats, I'm sure. Are thinking, oh, cats, like definitely. I know my cats want to kill me, and would yeah. if they if they had the chance. It's it's I've no doubt in it. Um, well, I think we we've ruined Disney for everyone. So. Uh, <laughs> Maybe on that, maybe on that bombshell, as Alan Partridge would say, we should uh, wrap this up. It has been fantastic talking to you. Um, good luck with Nefarious. I hope you keep us informed on how things go, and maybe we can get you back on the podcast uh, and get a little bit of um, uh, feedback on on how things went, and and maybe some spoilers. Uh, sounds like fun. Thank you very much for having me. Thanks a lot. Cheers.